0: Welcome, I'm Leslie Canham. I'm Mary Gavoni. I'm Linda Harvey. I'm Olivia Wan, and together we are the Compliance Divas. Welcome to the Compliance Divas podcast. We have a real treat for you today with a special guest who's going to share with us information about his esteemed career in dental infection prevention and control. My name is Mary Gavoni, and I will be your moderator for today. We bring clarity and efficiency to compliance by navigating the regulatory world to help you to stay in compliance. You can subscribe to the Compliance Divas podcast at thecompliancedivas.com or and through any of your podcast channels. If you have questions about this podcast today you can contact us by email at support at thecompliancedivas.com so we are thrilled to have with us today Dr. John Molinari who is such a friend to dentistry, who has been our infection control expert guru, mentor, teacher on all things infection control. We're actually attending the OSAP meeting the Organization for Safety, Asepsis, and Prevention. And John is here with us, and we just have lots of questions for John about his career and um, his love of teaching infection prevention and control in dentistry. So welcome, John.
1: My pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: We are thrilled to have you. So my question to you is, how do you see or do you see some parallels between what we've experienced with COVID and what we experienced back in the 1980s with HIV, AIDS, and hepatitis B in dentistry.
1: There are many similarities. Um, Many dentists, hygienist assistants back in the early 80s were not wearing gloves. Uh, Sterilization involved a lot of cold sterile, glutaraldehyde, for example. Um, AIDS was something that was so, quote, unquote, terrible. Uh, associated with uh, what people didn't think was uh, behaviors that uh, uh, people thought were acceptable, et cetera, people ostracized. And what was happening was uh, we were seeing these patients in the hospitals uh, dying very quickly. I can remember going into hospitals in Detroit with my infectious disease colleagues and uh, we had people coming in 1982, 83 dying in Detroit. The nurses wouldn't go on the floor. Uh, they were uh, asked to be, they were asking to be transferred to floors that didn't have AIDS patients on. Patients would uh, visitors wouldn't come in. And dentistry saw this. And so they took it upon themselves because they were concerned like everybody else was. Like maybe we could see if somebody was at high risk for this or if somebody had this, this dreaded disease. And then the concept of universal precautions was coming in. And the use of gloves, and that, as you can imagine, the fear, uh, similar to what in a way we're seeing with with COVID, uh, there was there was a resistance. Why do I need to wear gloves? I can I can screen my patients. I can tell if somebody's at risk, but you couldn't. And we saw this a lot in the clinic in Detroit. We had patients who later on we knew were drug addicts and had HIV, et cetera, et cetera, and gloves were incorporated to stop this, this kind of contact, bloodborne pathogen. And there was some early resistance, but dang it, dentistry did it. Dentistry wants to provide good care. They want to provide safe care. To me, that's a given. And I've seen that forever. And when they adapted to the gloves, they never went back. One of the things that's important to mention now with COVID is when people are seeing, that uh, these respirators are part of the transmission precautions for aerosols and airborne. And it, it's it's not part of our practice. To me, it's part of the practice setting. Well, we have people who say, well, I've been vaccinated, I've gotten boosted, I have a level three mask, I have a face shield. That's good enough. It's not because we have the evidence to show that these trans, these respirators work. And the example I use to go back to the HIV thing is, and hepatitis B is, after you got vaccinated against hepatitis B, which we know was the major bloodborne pathogen, did you stop wearing gloves? And the answer was, of course no. Because there was something else. It was hepatitis C, which wasn't even called hepatitis C back then, it was non-A, non-B hepatitis. So the fact is that dentistry adapted and adopted these precautions, and they've done a good job don't revert back because you think that, oh, well, we're through this. We can save this expense. We don't need to do this. It's too cumbersome. But the science and the evolution of the products is continuing to make it even easier and more breathable, more comfortable versus what we saw back in 2020. And So to me, that's, there's, there's a lot of similarities. There are. And thank you so much for sharing
0: that. And I think what you said is so profound. We didn't go back after vaccinations for hepatitis B, because there is the next thing. We don't know what the next respiratory um, virus is. Plus, we also have viruses and bacteria that are spread through aerosols that were there. Those hazards were there pre-COVID. And we really can't go back. And yet, many of the folks that we work with as consultants want to go back to the old way. So thank you for reinforcing that. Well,
1: there's there's even one other thing, and thank you. I appreciate your comments. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, an outbreak, a report CDC had us of um, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Yes. And I forget how many dental professionals had this and nobody could figure out what it is. It's eight. Eight. Thank you very much. I think one died. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and could it have been from the very fine particles? from the uh, operative procedures that weren't infectious particles. Nobody's figured that out just yet. But at the very least, it showed an occupational exposure to these small, fine particles that are quite differently behavior-wise from droplets. And that's where the regular masks don't work. And as I recall, these people were wearing regular face masks. Mm -hmm. But now we have the next progression of precautions. Absolutely. Olivia you have a question for John. I do. Oh, geez.
0: I do. I want
2: to know that throughout your career as an instructor at a dental school and also your career in lecturing, how do you motivate people beyond just being complacent?
1: <sighs> how do I motivate people? Yeah, I guess I don't think about it like that. I think about getting it up and explaining hopefully what the issues are, what the problem is. Um, I, I love what I do. I love to learn. I try to learn something all the time, and accept it if I can, as best I can. And I try to pass that on. Not just what you're going to do, but why you're going to do it. If, if, if you just tell them what to do, students, whoever, some are going to do it because they're going to do it. But others are going to say, why? I mean, uh, is this your opinion sort of stuff? I don't care if it's EPA, FDA, CDC, God. Uh, (laughs) You have to explain it. And there's not always a great explanation. But part of it is to get them to understand the rationale and then actually bring themselves to accepting it. Gloves was a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Our hygiene department at University of Detroit asked for gloves in 1980. Wow. Uh, Everybody was concerned about hepatitis B. This was before AIDS. And I went to our finance dean, who was a good man, but we didn't have a whole lot of money at our dental school. No, too expensive. Nobody's wearing gloves, come on. Our old surgeons weren't wearing gloves. Finally, he said yes, and we were able to get the students one pair of gloves a day. I I beefed it up to two pairs because I used to go to the companies and asking for boxes of gloves, and when the dispensary in the school was running low, I'd go up to my lab and get a box of large, medium, and small gloves, and I supplied the dental school from Meir and those other companies. What happened is the students did it because I was explaining hepatitis B to them. The faculty hadn't had that type of training, so they were more resistant, but when they saw and heard more about hepatitis B, they started wearing the gloves, but they were resistant at first. Of course, when HIV came, you know, they couldn't put gloves on fast enough uh, because they were so concerned. But to me, it's always been a process of don't just tell them what to do. That's not always going to work. They have to understand because these are, these are educated people. True. Everyone in this room at the OSAP meeting is educated and some are highly, highly educated. Who really can focus on things and understand things even better than you or I can.
2: So really showing them the science and uh, you have been the giant in our industry and we appreciate you imparting your knowledge
1: and your skills. You're very kind. Sometimes sometimes it's it's not the best thing in the world because you can gross people out. (laughs) What I love for me is I had to be involved in medicine, not just dentistry, and that's been my background. I spent a lot of years working in uh, a couple of years at Pittsburgh Hospital before I got to Detroit, and then certainly in the Detroit Hospital systems uh, as a consultant with infectious diseases. Not just the dental departments, but with uh, emergency departments, uh, just with my, emergency col- uh, my infectious disease docs. And so we saw some of the first AIDS patients in hospitals in 1983, in Detroit. We saw, you name it, every type of infection you could imagine. Uh, And that brings back my expertise to where I can apply it to other areas. So that helped me with credibility, where people would say, he knows what he's talking about. Not that I'm a physician or a dentist, but I can apply what I saw to the science and then get it across to a certain extent. Awesome. It's helped. You've always been the voice of reason John,
0: (laughs) always. Leslie. So Dr. Molinari,
2: to piggyback on both of the comments that Mary and Olivia made, uh, PPE will never go back. To wearing uh, no, not wearing gloves and treating patients. As a young dental assistant, I remember that my friends were afraid to work in dentistry because they were worried that they would in the early 80s that they would become infected with sure, AIDS. Sure, and, sure, sure. And uh, so uh, it, we were driven by fear at first to wear the PPE. If we switch this around to today in COVID, and and the best option for protecting yourself for respiratory protection is an N95 respirator, but many dental practices are not subscribing to wearing N95s, and we have a lot of divisiveness in the whole country surrounding you know all of the information around uh, SARS-CoV-2. What would be the best way to, in, in your words, to help compel people to reconsider wearing N95 respirators ongoing, the same way that we are wearing gloves ongoing?
1: It's a big challenge. One of the ways, and this is only one of the ways, is that since dental offices opened up after, what, nine, 10 weeks or whatever it was in 2020, dentistry, I'll say dentistry, dentist hygienist assistants were scared because they heard so much about this horrible disease. Back in the summer of 2020 in the United States, we had an over 3% death rate which is far lower now because of the types of treatments and et cetera, et cetera, that we have. But people were scared and so dentistry responded, as I mentioned yesterday, just my brief discussion, Um, they went and they were trying to get respirators. Uh, My dentist in a little small town, uh, the local dental society provided them with some respirators to help them. Uh, they went out and they bought these separate air exchange units, uh, the surgically clean air and other things. Some of them bought the air evacuation, uh, suction things in front of them, not all of them, but they were scared and they were looking at it, doing the right things and they did. And we haven't seen outbreaks in dentistry like we saw in other types of facilities, nursing homes, hospitals, meatpacking facilities physical fitness facilities, church services, weddings. We haven't seen that traced back to dental offices where we've had clusters of those types of cases. That's positive information. And we can say it's because you did the job. Now, you've already made the investment in time, money, effort. You've gotten over your initial hysterical fears. Keep doing it. And I go back to the glove thing. It's not going to be easy. It's, it, it's not going to be easy because this is something that has cost them a lot of money. I mean, gloves don't cost anything compared to buying some of the units. The respirators have come down in price. They're certainly much more available. Manufacturers tell us that there's a backlog of stocks that they have, that they haven't sold yet. It, it's going to take time because there's been so much more of a a, a a a dialogue, good and bad about COVID, than we had with hepatitis B. We certainly had back and forth with HIV, but gloves were, believe it or not, a much easier sell than these respirators, because now dentistry got so used to gloves and masks, that's fine. Now we have face shields, but they've got to understand the fact that this is this is not working the same way. This, this bug is transmitted differently. And I think it's going to happen. The respirators are not going away.
2: And for those who think that I've developed an immunity all this time I've been working in dentistry, can you speak to what we might expect to happen in the evolution
1: of these bugs that we might be exposed to? <laughs> and that's part of the confusion. Uh, in the past, we had hepatitis B vaccination, which is greater than 90% effective for people that are vaccinated, which is great. I mean, that's very good. And people have expected that, you know, measles, mumps, 97, 98%. Uh, HPV is like 99%. That's great. You come to influenza, and if you get 50%, that's a lot. Well, people forgot about influenza. Now, you, you know, they, 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 we, we've had politicians who said COVID was the same as influenza, which was so silly, other than the fact that it's transmitted by respiratory means, but those viruses are much more volatile in a, in a changing way than hepatitis B and measles. Those latter viruses are stable. Respiratory viruses like SARS, uh, or coronaviruses in general, influenza viruses, rhinoviruses for colds—they constantly change. Uh, there are you—you you can have three colds from different rhinoviruses in a season. You made antibodies to each one of those colds, but you're still susceptible to other ones. And coronaviruses mutate, change, and people need to understand that those. I hate to use the word mutations, I use them adaptations, are something that these viruses do very, very readily. Um, And now that they've jumped into humans with these types of strains that can adapt very readily, they're here. So do we create more vaccines? We will, and that's going to help a lot with hospitalizations and real severe illness and death. But it's not going to be the whole answer. We need to still protect ourselves from exposure in healthcare facilities. Obviously, in the public, there's only so much you can do. But people need to understand that vaccines for these types of infections are not the same as vaccines for some of the other diseases that we've had such great success for because these things can adapt very, very readily. Uh, this is where I look at things like uh, other countries. I look at South Africa. I look at Indonesia, I look at Australia, where we've seen the emergence of these new variants in the population because of overcrowding, lack of vaccination, even some countries with high vaccination where these variants can now escape some of the antibodies that you've produced. And that sounds crazy, but they don't respond as well. So I use the example, you can get a flu shot respond and you can still get the flu. It might be milder than if you didn't get a flu shot, but you can still get the flu because the viruses are constantly changing where the antibodies may not inactivate all, or in the case of SARS-CoV-2 with these Omicron variants, they produce so many more times of the virus particles that it almost overwhelms the antibodies that you have, which work, but there's more virus and people need to understand it. That's the science and it's microbiology. I apologize, I'm going to say something bad. No, do, please. I drive my wife crazy for a variety of things. But one of the things that she gets tired of me saying is, I don't understand where all these PhDs in microbiology came from recently because we have so many freaking experts. I am not an expert. I know a lot about microbiology, but I'm not an expert on all these types of areas. But there are people, and there's information that's getting out there, which is just supposedly from quote-unquote experts, and you have to wonder where they've gotten their science from. You know, it's, it's, it it's sad because it, it's not even pseudoscience. I call it internet science. <laughs> which is, which is even scarier.
0: That's a very good description. Absolutely. (laughs) And, Leslie, first of all, we need to do a shout out to our fourth diva, Linda Harvey, could not be here with us at the meeting. She's joining us virtually, but she shared with you a question that she has for John. Oh, geez. So
2: Linda's question for you, she said that when she speaks to groups or to clients, Oftentimes, she's asked if it's the law that they have to perform waterline maintenance or test water lines, and uh, she says that really our sense as the compliance divas and, and dental professionals is that dental offices are thinking it nice to uh, know information, but is not required to know information about monitoring water lines and uh, and uh, also testing, uh, treating if it, if you need to and. We'd like to know your position. Um, So we know that certain states uh, subscribe to CDC guidelines and CDC recommendations, so now become law in those states. But what about the other states where they still have the discretion to test or treat? Uh, What would you recommend?
1: It's going to be a broad statement, okay? Why did you all get into dentistry? Why did you go to hygiene assisting or dental school? Same reason that physicians, nurses, nurse anesthetists, PAs went in, to help people, to treat people, to cure whatever illness it is. And the bottom line for all the health professions is do no harm, which means the safety of the patient comes first. Obviously, you protect yourself but do no harm means that you do the best you possibly can to prevent whatever the illness happens to be. And we have documentation for water lines. We have at least five known outbreaks that show that dental water lines have been responsible for infections, two pediatric dentistry clinics. We have two Legionella fatal cases. We have the case back in the eighties uh, with uh, cancer survivors and pseudomonas infections. Plus we have anecdotal data from earlier dental studies where dentists, one is an orthodontist, I believe in Washington years ago, died of Legionnaires disease And the suspicion was he picked it up from the water lines. Nobody ever followed up a hundred. But the point is, We have the data, we have the information, we have the science, the clinical science. And what's your responsibility as a health professional? To say, well, it's a regulation, it's a recommendation. What is your basic responsibility? Your basic responsibility is to treat that patient, protect them, and protect yourself. So you can give all the other things you want, but I'll just bring it back to what your oath was that you took.
2: Of course the bottom line of protecting the patient but encircling that to protecting yourself uh, making sure that water lines are uh, within normal drinking water Absolutely. quality is consistent with CDC recommendations Absolutely. where if, if it's over colonized with bacteria, it's inconsistent. Sure. So we're protecting ourselves as dental workers. And yeah. and to circle back with the, the PPE on N95 respirators, uh, respirators will protect uh, a patient from a dental worker who Absolutely. may be shedding the virus. That's and right. there may be patients who are unable to get vaccinated or perhaps don't tell the truth about whether they've gotten vaccinated or right, not. Right, right. And so they, uh, they become at risk if a dental worker cleans.
1: And I'll even bring up one other thing, Leslie, that you, you were alluding to. If you look at our population, we have an increasing percentage of the population that's immune compromised, mm-hmm. cancer survivors, transplants, brittle diabetics, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, prolonged steroid therapies. Uh, we have them in our families. Uh that's your dental population is increasing like that. So those people are more susceptible to these common bugs that come out of the sprays and droplets and aerosols, and I'm not even talking just the viruses, just the bacteria, than you or I. And the responsibility is to protect all your patients. And so where we have the solutions, that's what you do. But I, I tell people, look at your patient populations. These people are not able to eliminate or to resist these types of exposures like you. And you have an obligation to them. And you have dental providers who are in that category. They need to be protected. So we we have the solutions, or we have the approaches. The solutions continue to evolve. And that's just the right thing to do.
2: It's eye-opening.
0: And like you said, the solution are right at our fingertips. Yep. Yep. You're it right. is. John, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You know how much we all love you, and we're going to miss you out there on the lecture circuit, but we know that you still will be consulting and sharing your expertise and your information. So thank you to our listeners for joining us today for this special edition of the Compliance Divas podcast. Again, if you have questions, you can submit them to support at thecompliancedivas.com, And there are some resources that we will include with this podcast today, and you can access those at the ComplianceDivas.com website. Thank you for joining us.